News. 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 New York City. The FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. <laughs> FAQ. It's FAQ NYC. It's Wednesday. I'm Harry Siegel here in Brooklyn, New York. Joined across Brooklyn by uh, Professor Christina Greer, returned from Philadelphia. Hello. Hello. And our guest this week, uh, I think you should introduce because, in fact, he, uh, he's been on before and he represents you. Yeah, so I'm always excited when I have my state senator on, Zellner Myrie, also a proud alum of Fordham University. Uh, he got his master's in urban studies there. So Senator Myrie joined us today to talk about the legislation that he and his colleagues put together uh, for eviction moratoriums for tenants across uh, New York State, but also some relief for small landlords who are also struggling in this moment during COVID. So take a listen. Senator Myrie, thank you so much for joining us again. Good morning. Good morning. Good to be with you. Good to have you. Uh, fill us in, please, on this anti-eviction law that the legislature has passed, governor has signed, and what this uh, does and doesn't mean for uh, tenants and landlords. So we introduced the Emergency Eviction and Foreclosure Prevention Act on Christmas Eve. I know that's a mouthful, but the reason why I think it's important for us to put that out there is that some of the floor debate that we had with, with my colleagues on the other side of the aisle uh, very much focused on what this would do for tenants. Uh, but this was an eviction and a foreclosure prevention act, uh, one that would pause foreclosure proceedings for our homeowners uh, and would also prevent tax lien sales uh, for small property owners as well. And so the, the major thrust of the legislation is that we are in the midst of a public health crisis. Uh, we are in the throes of an economic crisis. And the solution to both of those is not to throw people out on the streets. The solution, and we're going to continue to work on this, is direct monetary relief that we can only get from the federal government. But in the interim, uh, we should not be evicting people. We should not be foreclosing on their homes. Uh, we should not be subjecting them uh, to this crisis out on the streets. And so this would pause evictions of all stripes and foreclosures of all stripes for the next 60 days. Uh, and then after those 60 days, if a property owner, a landlord wanted to evict a tenant, uh, they, they'd have to overcome uh, what we call a hardship declaration, uh, one that uh, allows for tenants and, and small homeowners alike uh, to fill out and say, due to COVID-19, um, I'm unable to pay my rent or unable to pay my mortgage. And it allows them to stay that eviction proceeding so that they won't be put out on the streets. So, so as I understand this, the hardship declarations are self-certified here. So it's it's a low barrier to entry, given the circumstance. And this is 60 days, so this takes us to March. The governor had his own executive order moratorium that was going to expire at the end of the year. And that's part of why the legislature had this unusual Christmas session to get this done. So I'm trying to understand a few things there. Why the legislature needed to uh, step in and how we got to this moment. And a big one is what happens – at the end of these 60 days, when the deferred money comes due and you have this sort of cascading set of things from, from tenants to small landlords and big landlords and then, then from landlords to banks? Yeah, it's, it's a great question, Harry. So 
Um, just as a point of clarification, the 60 days is a stay on all of those proceedings, but the, the bill actually is in effect until May 1st. So after that 60-day window in between March and May, uh, the hardship declaration will still serve as um, a pause on the eviction or the foreclosure, but there are certain very limited circumstances under which a proceeding can go forward, one of them being if the tenant is posing an unreasonable a safety hazard to the other folks in the multi-dwelling. Uh, the reason the legislature had to step in uh, was that the governor's moratorium, combined with the federal moratorium, was being interpreted differently uh, in different courts around the state. As you know, uh, there are some jurisdictions in the state of New York where judges aren't required to be attorneys. There are different interpretations of the law in the, in, in the moratoria, uh, and we saw uneven enforcement. So evictions were happening even under the governor's executive order. Uh, and if they weren't happening, they were on the precipice of happening. I, in fact, had a number of eviction warrants executed in my own district uh, where my office had to intervene and say, wait, this uh, should not be happening. Uh, so we thought it was important to step in uh, to make it clear uh, that evictions should not be happening, put out a standard for everyone to follow, and also make it consistent for you know at least the next five months to give us time to focus on the relief, which brings me to the second part of your question. Uh, what happens when the rent comes due? This bill does not obliterate an individual's uh, obligation to pay rent or to pay their mortgage, you know, it really just stands for the proposition that as we're trying to figure out the relief portion of this, uh, that people shouldn't have to do that on the streets. The truth is that the only solution is the money that we're going to get from the federal government. Uh, you know, this, the president signed uh, the COVID relief bill a couple of days ago after much bluster and, you know, attempting to negotiate after the deal. And uh, we believe that New York is going to get somewhere in the neighborhood of $1.3 billion just for rent uh, alone, uh, rent and mortgage relief. So we have to figure out as a legislature how that is going to be divvied up. Different states around the country have uh, had different models. They have the landlord apply for the relief. Uh, some have had the tenants apply for the relief. Uh, but that is the, that's the real issue that we're hoping uh, to tackle, I think, in, in, in quite short order once we return to the new session next week. So, so if I look at this from a high level, I see a lot of deferring issues and literal buck passing, I think necessarily that there's so many dollars to go around. It's a question of who's going to suffer and who's going to have to eat some of the costs of, of all this pause. But my one other question for you here is I'm hoping you can just say what you're hearing from constituents in your district, not uh, Professor Greer, but others. Um <laughs> Uh, tenants and, and maybe property owners and, and their concerns, if you can just spell out for listeners who, you know, this is particularly relevant for just, you know, in a basic checkbook way, like what this means for them and how they should be thinking about it and, and dealing with uh, with their own landlords and issues at the moment. Yeah. So we, we actually, we introduced a eviction moratorium bill back in July. So we had been hearing the concerns of tenants who were afraid of being evicted all the way back in July, if you've lost your job or have had your hours reduced, uh, you've lost income, you've had added expenses, you now have to take care of folks who have suffered loss um, or in some of the most tragic cases where the individual responsible for the upkeep of your home uh, succumbed to COVID, you know, we thought that it was important to put this moratorium in place a, a very long time ago. 
and throughout that period, I've been hearing from tenants uh, who said, you know, my landlord is constructively trying to evict me, not doing repairs, um, sending uh, threatening letters. You know, I've gone to a number of buildings in my districts, particularly in, in, in Crown Heights, where um, tenants have held rallies. People have gone on rent strike uh, because the landlord has has refused to play ball with them. And so that's been a constant stream. But I've also heard from homeowners and small property owners uh, who say, look, I get that my tenants are going through it, but the rent is my source of income. And this is how I pay my property taxes, my water bill. This is how I do upkeep. Uh, and I also have to pay a mortgage. So when you do anything on this front, please consider us as well. And we have about 20,000 of sort of what we would classify as small property owners in the district. Uh, and so if you are in any of those classes, um, within 15 days from the effective date, which was a couple of days ago when the bill was passed and signed into law, the Office of Court Administration is required to produce the hardship declaration on a public website in seven languages. And if you don't speak one of those languages, your landlord or the court is required to give you the form in your native language. And so very soon, it's going to be available for you to print up a hardship declaration. If you're a tenant, you can't pay your rent. Um, you attest to this uh, under the penalty of law and you submit that to the landlord or the court, you cannot get evicted. If you are a homeowner, uh, you have tenants that that's your source of income. They can't pay their rent. You can sign this hardship declaration under penalty of law that will stop the foreclosure. You send that to the bank or the court. And we also, for tax liens, that's a big deal here in the city of New York, but also uh, throughout the state. If you have back taxes owed due to COVID-19 hardship, you sign this declaration, the city cannot put your property on that sale. And so uh, this is, I think, going to help a lot, a lot of people. And it's a pretty simple and straightforward way uh, for folks to have access to this relief. So, Senator, you thank you for that. You answered a part of my question. And first things first, shout out to Fordham University. Proud alum is yeah, yeah, Myri. <laughs> and I'm a, I'm a proud member of your district. Um, yes, yes. So, you know, in the press release that's on your website, it, it does say that it's available in multiple languages. And you said seven and other languages are provided in a simple form and simple language, which I think is incredibly important because a lot of people get caught up in legalese and, you know, they just... Quite honestly, it doesn't matter what your education level is. If you're not used to reading these types of documents, you don't really know what you're signing sometimes. So I think the simple form is really important. But what are some of the other ways besides the website that you and your office and your colleagues are getting this information out to people who are actually struggling? Because some folks don't know necessarily to go to your website to find the form. So what's kind of the marketing behind it? Uh, this is a super important question. And to some extent, each legislator is going to market to their district uh, in a different way and uh, what they what they believe will reach folks. Um, you know, I plan to do sort of maximum exposure to this. We're looking at our mailing budget uh, to see if we can do a mailer to everyone in the district, as well as all of the you know sort of social media stuff. But even that doesn't capture the folks who are really on the fringes and people who who need the protection the most, who are not connected. So we wrote into the law a requirement uh, that if the landlord uh, is trying to evict you, that they have to submit an affidavit to the court saying that they have provided the hardship declaration 
to you, as well as an explanation of that right. And so they are required, even if they just want to get into the courtroom, uh, to give you this hardship declaration. And even if you get past that process, um, the court is also responsible to ensure that you've received this hardship declaration before making any sort of adjudication around your housing case. Right. And so there are multiple stop gaps for you to receive it, for you to know what it is that you have that gives you the opportunity to stop the proceeding uh, before you continue. So in a worst case scenario, you know, if our legal service organizations, our housing organizations, our community leaders, our faith leaders, our elected officials weren't able to avail you of this option, uh, we have built it into the law uh, that you were supposed to get notice at several junctures uh, before you proceed. I think that's incredibly important just because, I mean, sometimes the information does not get disseminated uh, to certain communities the way it should. And I, I guess my final question is, as you all move forward with this, what what other pieces of legislation are you all working on uh, in the early parts of the year? And also, can you give us a rough idea, I don't know if you know this number, of how many New Yorkers are facing eviction right now? Yeah, so the numbers, um, it's hard to, uh, to, to, to fully capture yeah. it, uh, because, because there have been all these, you know, there's a sort of constellation of moratoria, um, that, that pause it. But we can say, I think with reasonable confidence, given a, a number of studies that looked at this, that there are upwards of two million New Yorkers who are rent insecure who have, you know, suggested on a survey that they don't know if they're going to be able to pay next month's rent. Uh, that number is close to 50% in black and brown communities. Uh, when you look at city, it's not just a New York City problem. You consider Albany, Rochester, Syracuse, Yonkers, where close to 40% of renters have lost income uh, because of COVID-19. Uh, and so we can guesstimate that there are tens of thousands of people who are on the precipice of eviction absent uh, our action on this on this issue. And so, like I mentioned before, there have been eviction filings kind of seeping through the holes and uh, there had been landlords that were preparing for these moratoria to expire and, and ready to get folks into into court. You know, I've heard from a number of property owners who were not happy with this legislation, uh, who have said that this is going to hurt small businesses uh, and this is going to hurt my constituents' ability to bounce back. Um, and, you know, my response uh, to them sort of writ large has been, I get that you are under economic pressure. We have to work on that. Uh, you know, uh, Dr. Greer, to your question of what we're doing next session, um, in the housing space, our number one objective is getting relief to tenants and landlords to address the arrears problem that this eviction doesn't touch on. And so um, I think that that's going to be, you know, under the leadership of, of the chair of the housing committee, Brian Kavanaugh, um, I think this is going to be something uh, that we that we focus on intently. But I also think it's an opportunity, much like uh, a lot of other areas in our society now, for us to reimagine what housing should look like, uh, reimagine what ownership looks like. And, you know, we're going to be proposing some legislation um, around tenant opportunity to purchase buildings and I think really giving folks an opportunity to adopt a different model of development here in, in the city of New York while the market is where it's at. Because the truth is private equity firms um, and hedge funds um, have been preparing for this day 
uh, when the housing market would once again be in, in disarray uh, and they have the capital to come in and swoop things up. Uh, and this is a business model for them. This isn't a provision of a human right. Uh, and I think that we as a legislature have to look at how we prevent uh, a similar cycle that we saw in 2008, uh, where they gobbled up the market and, and didn't allow for us um, uh, to really put the tenants and, and the homeowners uh, out front. And Harry, really quickly, you know, and thank you for that that detailed explanation, um, because I think a lot of people forget just how much the hedge fund community pays attention to these things. So one, uh, I'm so happy to see you put in this Fordham Urban Studies degree to great use. And two, I think this is also an opportunity for our listeners to uh, check out Nikita Stewart's book on Troop 6000, the Girl Scout troop that that changed the world. Nikita Stewart is a a writer at the New York Times uh, because so many of the girls from Troop 6000 are in shelters because of the very situation that you just laid out. So for those of you who are interested, it's Nikita Stewart and the book is Troop 6000, the Girl Scout troop that began in a shelter and changed the world. Uh, Harry, go ahead. Or inspired the. It's uh, it, it's terrific. It came out of a, a Times article, uh, but you should go and read the book in full. I have one more specific question here, and then two closing general ones. So the two big objections I've seen uh, from landlords uh, individually and through their various lobbying groups are one that there's no income provision here. So, you know, if someone uh, someone's making 500000 a year and now they're making four fifty, but working from home and, and they say, I've got a health issue, this applies to them too. And that's not fair. And two, that the, uh, the cap for, for what's considered a small landlord here of 10 units is too small, that somebody who owns like a walk-up brownstone is, is pretty much right there at 10. Um, I'm not sure how many people are shedding tears for, for, for you know, brownstone owners who, who are renting out at the moment, but... As you were saying, some of those people are squeezed too. So I was hoping you you could address uh, those specific things and also take a quick peek at the costs for the uh, state that that are coming up here, right? So you have the the tax liens that you mentioned. And uh, at some point when you get to the arrears problem, what what sort of money are we talking about here potentially coming from the the state? And before you answer, I just want to add that, that I would have had you on for a full program just about big banks. Big money, big equity gobbling up property on the other end of this because I think that is the forgotten story of 2008. I've written in passing about this but need to focus there. It's really important because when this ends, the people are going to have money in hand during this buying opportunity. You know, buy low, sell high. Uh, they're not going to be the people who live here and have invested and have stayed in New York throughout all this. It's going to be a lot of uh, big money looking to see what they can uh, gobble up and where, which I think is really distressing and I'm glad to hear – the legislature is, is thinking about coming into this session. That, that, that is looming behind a lot right now. No, it's, it's incredibly important, Harry, and I you know, look forward to <clears throat> discussing it in further detail uh, with you down the line. You know, I, I'd say that the, it, it also provide an opportunity for tenants and small property owners to come together and say that we have a, a vested interest in preserving the makeup of our communities, uh, and uh, we should be the bulwarks against uh, private equity coming in and gobbling it up. And so I'm hoping that 
uh, that provides an opportunity for us to work together. Uh, on the specific questions that you had, you know, the income uh, threshold, we've seen that done in other states, I think most prominently in California, uh, uh, where they not only include sort of an income threshold to, to, to get this relief, but also a requirement that you pay 25% of your rent in order to avail yourself of, of this protection. Uh, and there was some discussion around this, and, and I think we got away from that. Uh, it was a policy choice uh, because, you know, the sort of $500,000 income uh, was something thrown out in, in, in our floor debates. There is no empirical evidence that people making that kind of money are refusing to pay their rent. Uh, there is there there is a sort of anecdotal, uh, and and folks will say you know I have folks that can afford to do it but but aren't, uh, but but there's there's just no real evidence that this is a widespread issue, uh, and we can't I, I it's my I think governing philosophy uh, we cannot govern to the extreme uh, and to the hypotheticals. Uh, is there one person or a few? people out there that are refusing and have the means to? Sure, I'm sure there are. But the overwhelming majority of folks um, just simply cannot pay. And the determination of an individual's income and whether they can pay or not, that requires adjudication and evidentiary standards and is a process. Uh, and you think about what the scope of that would mean for millions of tenants and homeowners across the state, you would essentially be uh, creating many trials uh, over this when the point is uh, for us to not be going through that process uh, and for us to be staying the eviction proceedings until we figure out the relief. Uh, on the price tag, you know, there have been some estimates by some national housing organizations that in New York alone, uh, that the old rent, uh, the back rent, is, is, is somewhere in the universe of $1.4 billion. Uh, and so when we talk about what sort of relief uh, we need uh, from, from the federal government, uh, it, we think it has to be in that universe. If we have done the formula calculations correctly, and my understanding of the, the bill that was most recently signed by the president is that the formulas would be based on the CARES Act formulas. Um, and, if, and if those uh, are correct, we're slated to get in the area of $1.2 billion from this relief bill. So um, it doesn't cover everything, uh, but, it, but it gets pretty close. And then the question is going to be how we divvy that up and what the application process is to receive that financial relief. And so uh, we, you know, we have our work cut out for us. Uh, and you know, I look forward to having you know, what I believe is going to be a very spirited discussion uh, around getting this relief uh, to our tenants and our property owners. Um, uh, but I think it's something that the, the legislature will be ready to tackle. And then my, my closing question, shifting gears, but staying a little with California, we've talked with you before about voting access and, uh, and, and participatory democracy and reforms in New York. And uh, we now have automatic registration, which is awesome. We experienced early in-person voting this year and not, not that separate from, you know, the, the, the virus-related, you know, urgent mail-in stuff. But as a permanent thing where you can show up two weeks in advance and cast your vote and you don't have to stand in line. So so huge props to uh, the new blood in Albany for getting those overdue reforms in. I just wrote a column about one other as I'm cranky about the mayoral field. I'm wondering why <laughs> we can't have non nonpartisan uh, primaries here given how relatively few people turn out 
in these very high stakes elections like the mayoral one we're having next year. And if this is something that, that the Democrats who now control the legislature might seriously consider. You know, I, um, you know, one, I, I read that column. I'll say, you, you know, Harry, you've been bringing the fire um, to the mayoral race uh, for the past couple of weeks. And I, I've enjoyed reading your columns. And I did see this piece. We're going to be holding a hearing uh, in late January as of now. And uh, we're going to be looking at uh, a whole host of things to improve the election process. Uh, and, you know, I would encourage anyone uh, yourself included to submit testimony or to or to or to come testify on um, the validity of looking at some other systems. Uh, you know, I think that you have seen uh, even uh, sort of uh, tweaks that have been approved by the voters overwhelmingly, like ranked choice voting, um, become a hot button issue. And I believe it's based really in politics and not in policy. And I think we would face some of that same resistance to open primaries, but there are other localities that that take advantage of that system. And, um, you know, I'd be very open to hearing how people think that would play out here in, in, in the city. You know, I love that low-key burn on it was voted overwhelming. You know, I love, you know, I love a subtle burn. You know, a lot of these are these these are the facts. These, these are, are the facts. facts. Just the facts, ma'am. Just the facts. Well, you know, and before we let you go, I do have a quick question because you were such a leader on Census, the census, making sure that not only people in your district, but across the five boroughs really understood the importance of the census. And some of the reports, some of the preliminary reports are looking like New York is possibly going to lose not just one seat, but maybe even two. Um, can you talk to us a little bit more about how you feel about how the census went? You you tried your best during a global pandemic uh, and also the Republican Party in Washington, D.C., actively working against uh, assisting with the census and trying to cut it off uh, on multiple occasions. Uh, where do you feel we are right now and sort of the efforts that you and your colleagues put forth uh, over the past few few years, actually? You know, I'm, I'm glad you brought this up, Dr. Greer. My um, you know, understanding is we were, if things were going under the normal course, we'd be getting our census numbers tomorrow. Uh, that is the statutory deadline uh, for us to receive the, the hard numbers, not estimates, on what the census gave us uh, here in the city of New York. Uh, we tried our very best. We laid it all out on, on the table. I think the state could have done more. Certainly the federal government could have done more. And you're right. All estimates are saying that we're going to lose one and in, in, in very possibly two congressional seats, which is disappointing. Uh, we should not be losing any congressional seats. Uh, not just because I'm, uh, you know, New York first person and think we're the best, but I, I don't think the numbers dictate that we actually lose people. Uh, I think that there are a whole host of communities that were not counted uh, because of census suppression. Uh, and uh, we see that the, the president is, is trying to still discount uh, our immigrant community, not have them included in the numbers, uh, which would certainly dictate that we lose even more representation. And, and it's disappointing. Uh, one of the things that I was heartened by was that we matched the numbers that we did 10 years ago. And while we were trying to exceed it the whole time in the middle of a global pandemic, um, I think the Herculean effort uh, to get folks counted uh, was the only reason why we came close to matching uh, what we did in 2010. And, and it makes me hopeful um, that, you know, under better circumstances, we would have exceeded uh, those numbers and, you know, really is going to be incumbent on us 
uh, to continue to fight uh, to, to get the representation that we need. The implications uh, of the census, I think we've spoken about a lot. The redistricting piece of that is coming up. Uh, that is going to be happening next year. Uh, by statute, there are going to be hearings that happen all over the state next September. Uh, and this is an opportunity for the public to submit how they believe they should be represented on every level of government. Uh, and so it's going to be another organizing opportunity for us to say, okay, well, we didn't get the, the, the numbers that we would have liked to see, uh, but let's be involved in the process that determines who your member of Congress is uh, and who your senator assembly person uh, will be in the state legislature. So, um, you know, while uh, disappointing in some respects, I think there really is an opportunity for us to continue the organizing that we did around the census. Well, I appreciate the organizing that you all did because, you know, that's one of the first things I teach my students. Uh, you know, when we look through the U.S. Constitution and the the bare bones document that it is, one of the the, the items that is clearly laid out is uh, the importance of the census. So hopefully uh, we won't get hit too, too hard. But I, I so appreciate those efforts. Harry? Hey, Senator, we appreciate you and taking a half an hour out of your day to uh, to come and talk with us. We're looking forward to continuing the conversation over the year and what should be a, a really interesting year up in Albany with some mm-hmm. big, ambitious stuff getting looked at and uh, some gigantic challenges. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be big. And we're wishing you a safe and healthy new year filled with oxtails and successful legislation. <laughs> yes, yes. I'm very much looking forward to some good oxtails in 2021. Uh, it's always a pleasure to be uh, on the podcast. I remember uh, the first time that I was on, uh, we were talking about the rent regulation and uh, what that looked like and uh, the laws that we were going to pass around that. And um, it's good to be back on right before we end the year uh, talking about housing uh, and keeping folks in their homes. So a uh, very happy new year to all of you uh, and look forward to talking in 21. Thank you, Senator. Thank you. F-A-Q. FAQ NYC is a production of Racket Media and a proud member of the Brickhouse Cooperative of Independent Journalists and Artists. We're headquartered at NYU's McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research and recorded this week from the boroughs of Brooklyn and Manhattan. A special thank you to our guests this week, my Senator Zellner Myrie. Our executive producers, Alex Brooklyn and Adam Kamara, mixed and edited this episode. Be safe. Be well. We'll see you next year, actually. Happy New Year.